Welcome to Equiosity, the podcast about all things equine with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of Clicker Training for Your Horse and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. And today we have a really special guest. So Dominique, I have the very great pleasure, privilege, honor to introduce to you Anne Edie. And Anne is Panda's owner, and Panda's the mini I trained to be a guide. So Anne and I have been friends for a very long time. And we have great training conversations relating to Panda, relating to the big horses that we have, relating to horses in general, and today we get to share them with you. I'm so, so excited to have Anne with us um, because for me, um, seeing the work that was done with Panda was a turning point in my choosing to explore clicker training. Um, You know, at the time I was at Cavalia and I was looking for other ways to train. And as I was searching on the internet, when I saw everything that Panda was doing, that was one of the key things that convinced me that this was serious and that it was really worth my time. Um, so I'm really, really happy to have Anne with us to share what she has learned over the years and all the experiences she's had with Panda. Well, certainly I'll jump in before we let Anne say anything. Anne may get a word in every now and then, but I think some of the things that Panda really demonstrates so beautifully is one, this clicker training is about performance because certainly when you're talking about guide work, that is a performance well beyond the ordinary. And it also shows you that this is not a fad. This is not something that, oh, well, you do a little bit now and then, but it, it's it's trivial, it'll go away. It's just this week's um, type of training and next week it'll be something else. But Panda has been a working guide now and she's how old? 18. She's 18. So she, well, she's 18 and a half. And she's been working since she was two and a half. So uh, 16 years she's been working as a guy. Yeah. And part of the reason that I wanted to have you come at this juncture to talk to us about Panda and your experiences with her is because we've been doing, we've been talking a lot recently about cues. And I think, one of, again, one of the things that Panda really illustrates beautifully are the whole area of environmental cues and then the back and forth communication that occurs between handler and your animal learner. So it's that whole cue communication that occurs. And then the cues evolve out of the shaping process and the subtlety of cues that Panda illustrates all of these things really well. So where do we begin? Where do we begin in this conversation with about Panda and guide horses and cues and environmental cues? Well, maybe we can begin when she was two years old. Well, we, we actually could begin further back than that because she came to us at, at nine months of age. <laughs> People are probably thinking, is she ever going okay. to let that poor woman talk? <laughs> 
So Anne, yes, let's go let's go further back than that. So Panda also illustrates really well the contrast between cues and commands. So we've talked at various times in the podcast about cues and then contrasting them with commands. And commands have the do it or else threat backing them up. And certainly in the traditional horse world, the the world that most of us who have been involved with horses for any length of time, we would have first encountered command-based training. So you say to the horse, walk off, and you say it in, maybe it's a touch of your leg against the horse's side, however you've been taught. That would be a fairly common cue that, or common signal that people would use. And let's say the horse does not walk off promptly, so what you were taught is to now escalate that request. So you would you would tap a little harder with your leg. You might use your spur. You might uh, now tap with a crop. You would back this signal up in some way, and it that makes it a command. And the traditional way in which guide dogs were trained, that came out of the military. Came so the history of guide dogs. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, it definitely grew out of the um, World War One and then World War Two experience and the blinded uh, veterans that were returning after the wars. And so the training for the dogs was very much in the tradition of military dog training. And the uh, people who were getting the dogs were very well versed in that in that kind of training and so they understood the dog as a almost as a soldier and they expected the dog to learn the the commands and to respond promptly and and efficiently to those commands and the people were very strong they could deliver uh, meaningful leash corrections. They could um, be in the position of the alpha person in the relationship, and that was the the framework that they were working in. Of course, they considered the dog to be their their pal, their friend, their uh, companion as well. So they definitely treated them well within that uh, framework, and as they would a fellow soldier. So the the training was definitely command-based training. It worked. Turned out a lot of successful pairs for many, many decades. But there uh, there were changes that were occurring over those decades. So originally, the many of the guide dogs went to servicemen who had been blinded during World War I. So these were young men, strong men, physically fit they were just had been blinded in the war but now you're the population that is using guide dogs has changed quite dramatically you've got a much wider demographic you have older people you have people who have health issues who've lost their sight for example because of diabetes and and they have other health issues as well and so they need a 
a softer dog is the expression. A dog that might not be able to stand up to the command-based training that was the tradition in the guide dog community. So that's one change that was occurring. The environments in which these animals are working is more complex. So there are a lot of stresses on the dogs that would not have been present when the original training was done and traffic was less complex. All of those things are, are factors. But the, the dogs that you got were coming out of that command-based training. And so you were working the dogs with commands and then you encountered, and then you we had Panda who was taught with cues. And can you talk a little bit about that, that contrast when you're working with the dogs, how you always had to be a policeman? Because I always thought you spoke so eloquently to that. While we were in training, it was with the dogs at the school, it was always emphasized that we needed to be aware when the dog made a mistake and be sure to correct that mistake by either giving a, a verbal or a leash correction or responding in some way. We we didn't want to let the dog get away with, that was the phrase that was usually used, things because then the dog would not respect the handler, that, that uh, the training would fall apart if we didn't maintain it by correcting errors. So we always felt that we had to be on guard, that we had to be uh, be the policeman, make sure that the dog did the right thing. And as a blind person, when you're working with a guide, there's a very thin line between relying on your dog, being confident that the dog is is doing the right thing and is is looking out for your welfare and correcting the dog for doing something wrong. For example, if the dog deviates, if I'm walking along a sidewalk and the dog deviates from what I think is the straight uh, course and goes off to the side, I have to judge at, from on, on an instant-to-instant basis is he going off to the side because he's going around an obstacle or is he going over to sniff a bush or does he see some uh, food that's been dropped or something that he thinks is food by the side of the of the pathway and he's going over to grab it uh, it's very hard from my point of view to know do i follow my dog, as they always tell you in training, or do I correct my dog for going over and, and sniffing or uh, scavenging? As they also tell you in training. As they also tell you in training. <laughs> so there's yes. this conflict right away. And while you're in training, a lot of times they will say, follow your dog, or they will say, correct your dog, because you don't really know. And the, the dog, all the dog knows is if you if you if you follow your dog then the dog hopefully becomes stronger in that behavior if he's doing the right thing and if you, if you, the trainer says correct your dog and you do that then the dog thinks that you caught him in whatever behavior it was 
but once you get home, and you're only at the school for a couple of weeks, so uh, once you get home, the dog, they they used to say, the dog is going to te- uh, test you. The dog is going to see what he can get away with because you're a new person. Well, you now no longer, and I don't, you know, that's really getting into the head of the dog and trying to figure out what they're thinking. I don't see it that way, but they did in those days. That's what they used to tell us. But once you get home, you no longer have a trainer there to follow you around and tell you correct your dog or follow your dog. So you've got to make those decisions for yourself, and you've got to really... And, and, and your dog is in an environment that he doesn't know, that he's just learning. So he doesn't know what are, what are the important uh, landmarks. You know, I should always Sure, stop. all of that is, all all of of that that. is new. But, uh, but he's still testing you. Yes. Yes. Okay. And I th- think at that point, it becomes a, a re- you know, you're, you've got a new dog, so you don't know what his usual behavior is. Does he go for, uh, you know, is he a real sniffer of bushes? Is he a, a real food scavenger? Or can he generally walk past food without being interested in it? Uh, is he a squirrel chaser? Uh, is he a, a people magnet? Uh, those kinds of things you're just getting to know, so you might not be able to tell whether he's deviating because he sees some a child or a person who's looking friendly at him and he wants to go over and get a pat, or is he going around a uh, open manhole or something something significant that you need to be be aware of. Uh, and every time you correct your dog when he is doing the right thing, that damages the relationship and the working ability of the dog. Because now we're into poison cues. Yeah, aren't we? exactly. And that was one of the reasons poison cues and and confusion because yeah. it's not clear anymore. It's that confusion was... for both of us. You know, it's very easy yeah. for a trainer to say to see what's going on and to tell you when and and you know where to correct and and for a person who's in the actual situation to do to do the same thing so but the, this is one of the reasons that I became so interested in the poison cues and when Jesus when Dr. Rosales Ruiz did his presentations on the poison cue I really wanted to make sure that we didn't lose that information. That's why I did the DVD with him, because I thought this was, we just needed to understand and be aware of this, this the poison cue scenario and how long lasting it was and how detrimental it was <clears throat> to the overall performance of an animal. And what is it that we're looking at when we see this real drop off of response in the animals and the things like, and you would talk about the dogs when they would rush to the curb on the other side or they get to the final destination. So you get to your office and the dog rushes to get underneath the desk because that's sort of his way of escaping the stress of what if I get it wrong, I'm going to be punished. Yes, I, it really seems like it's a relief to get to the final destination. And one of the things that uh, the guide dogs 
have a lot of trouble with, especially nowadays with all the blended curbs, is, is stopping at curbs. All the unmarked curbs and, and uh, blended curbs that we have are very hard for the dogs to really identify where they're supposed to stop. And they know that if they don't stop for a, a curb, if they overrun it, they're going and the person is on the ball, they're going to get corrected, but they nev- they're never quite sure. So that leads to a couple of things. It either leads to a lot of overrunning the curbs because you're just in such a hurry to get to the final destination and, and uh, be able to avoid... Hide under the desk. <laughs> yeah, and avoid the situation. Or you're very tentative about approaching the curb. So there are a lot of dogs, and there was just a... A discussion on one of the lists, guide dog lists that I'm on the other day about dogs that kind of creep up to the curb. And the people are trying to say, you know, how can I get my dog to go up to the curb smartly and, you know, and stop rather than stopping three or four or five feet back from the curb and having to be urged to go forward, you know, find the curb, find the curb, find wow. the curb. And you're in, tr- you're in the, I know, crossing a road while this is going on. Well, you could be approaching, you know, the curb from the the sidewalk side, but they're very, they're still reluctant because they're not, never sure, am I supposed to stop here? Am I supposed to stop there? Where is the curb exactly? Um, those kinds of things. So the dogs become uh, very tentative. What so to do. so there was this, I have to be a policeman. And I could certainly see that in your body language, and we should also mention that not only do you have panda, but you have big horses as well. And the the dogs pulling, because the, the way that your the dogs that you had were trained, they were to put an active pull on the harness. And so your left side was very tight because that was the side that held on to the harness and the pull and and I just mentioned that because as someone who was working on your riding and we mm. want you to be more symmetrical right side and left side and soft on the left not having that closed hand tension that comes through the harness that was par- quite a project originally and so that whole being a policeman tension in your body and just outlook in life is is it's just not a good way to be and so the contrast because we don't want to spend a lot of time focused on the guide dogs and it has changed thanks to Michelle Puyo it has changed dramatically because now the dogs coming out of guide dogs for the blind are all clicker trained yay and that program is has been so successful that the guide dog schools around the world are are looking and changing. So those changes are being made. And I think one thing I'd like to mention about that is that apparently the dogs, they have a much longer life as guide dogs because they are not as stressed all the time as they used to be. And I suppose it would be interesting to see the stats of how many dogs were not making it as a guide dog before they have all of that they have all all of that data i mean the those schools collect data and on every metric everything that they were measuring 
the number of dogs that were placed, how long they take when Mm. they're in the school to transition to the new handler, the length of time that they are staying as working teams, every metric that they have, the clicker trained dogs are just light years ahead of what they used to see. It's just dramatic differences. Michelle has shared some of that at the Clicker Expo and at various presentations. And when she first shared some of that data, it was just staggering. But you, Anne, you've gotten to live the transition, not with the difference between a traditionally trained guide dog who's trained with commands and a guide dog that's coming out of a program that uses clicker training. You've made that transition going from guide dog to guide horse. So there's the difference both in species and and I think the really significant difference was the difference in the training. So Panda was trained with clicker training from start to finish and her training was all cue-based training. So she was not corrected for mistakes. So for example, if we were, and I have some of the early video of some of her training, a lot of her training was done opportunistically. So I would take her out every day for a walk around my neighborhood and it's a quiet neighborhood. But it's amazing how much goes on and how much changes from one day to the next around a quiet neighborhood. Alex, I think just before, just so if someone doesn't know who Panda is, we should probably mention that she's a yes. mini yes. horse. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> just so people can see the picture, right, the proper right. picture. Yes, she's a mini and she's she's a mini mini. She was I think the last time we weighed her in, she was what, 150 pounds? Yes. Yes. And she was black and white. Black and white. So she looks like a little panda. Yep. And she came, we we saw her first in July. She came from Florida, from breeders down in Florida. But it was too hot for her to travel north in the summer, so we had to wait until the fall. So she came to us at the end of September 2001, and that's when her life as a clicker-trained superstar began. And she's just, she was a phenomenal, phenomenal little horse. And I had not worked with minis before, so I really didn't have any basis for comparison. What I didn't know was, was, did we just get incredibly lucky and win the lottery and have this amazing, amazing little horse to work with? Or is this what miniature horses are like? And I've since met a lot of miniature horses, and there are many of them that are cut from the same cloth as Panda. She is environmentally super solid. So within, I think, two weeks into her training, I had to go to downtown Boston to present at a conference. And so it was either two weeks or three weeks into her training. She traveled with me to downtown Boston. She went up and down in an elevator. She walked over slippery marble floors. She stayed with me during the conference presentation. At one point, I went into the trade show, and we've all been in trade shows where, uh, and we know how crowded they can be. And I was, I had stopped at the Sunshine Books booth, my publisher, 
and and I was chatting with them and Panda decided it was nap time. So she lay down on the floor and took a nap. I mean, this is a horse we're talking about. And there are people sort of walking around her, over her, past her. And she's like, no, I'm taking a nap now. Just extraordinary. She doesn't worry about the world. She doesn't spook at novel things. She's not afraid of the world. And interestingly enough, she's not fussed by the presence or absence of other horses. So at that in that same time period, I was giving a clinic locally and Panda traveled with me and we set up a little pen right uh, in the arena so that I could be with her and monitor her because we were in the process of housebreaking her and I needed to keep track of her relieving schedule. So she was right next to me the whole weekend. And during the course of the of teaching, a horse would a big horse would come into the arena and then be all worried because it was in the arena by itself. And then a second horse would come in and the first horse would relax. So now another horse is there. And then the first horse would go out and the second horse would now be worried because it was in the arena by itself. Very typical horse behavior. Panda didn't care. It didn't matter if there was a horse in the arena. It didn't matter if there was a horse leaving the arena. It was as though she was in a completely different dimension. And whatever was going on in the arena had nothing to do with her. And she's been like that really throughout, that she enjoys the company of our big horses. She's always seemed to enjoy hanging out at the barn, but she doesn't seek them out. She doesn't seem to need their company. It's really quite remarkable. So super, super little horse. But anyway, so in the early stages of working with her, some days in my neighborhood, it might be trash day and all the trash cans would be out. So we would deal with them as an obstacle. Or it might be, since we got her in September, maybe somebody was out there with a leaf blower, blowing the great mounds of leaves up along the, the roadway. And my rule was that whatever was in front of us we had to deal with, that I couldn't cross the street and avoid something that was in front of us. So if somebody was walking a dog toward us, my rule said we had to keep going along the sidewalk and deal with whatever interaction was going to occur with the person approaching us because, and you wouldn't be able to see, oh, well, there's a dog coming and I don't want to deal with a dog today, so I'll just cross the street. Mm-hmm. So since you couldn't avoid that. My rule was we couldn't either. And one of the places where we crossed the street, there was a telephone pole right sort of where the curb was. And the first time that we crossed over, Panda obviously went around the telephone pole, but she didn't make room for me to get around the telephone pole. (laughs) And now, in the normal course of events, that wouldn't matter. I would see the telephone pole and make my own way around it. But of course, that's not what the training was about. So because she didn't make room for me, I crashed into the telephone pole and exaggerated the sort of did a silent movie slapstick exaggerated, oh, bang into the telephone pole. And after that, Panda made room for me. It was she's just, just so good at observing the consequences, 
making the adjustment and then broadening out from that example of a particular type of obstacle to all other obstacles in that class. It was really remarkable. But it, if she did make a mistake, for example, when she was in downtown Boston, we had our first overhead obstacles. And those are things that the dogs always, um, the guide dogs that you had, Anne, always seemed to struggle with. They, they didn't really seem to, I want to say generalize and learn that all overhead obstacles needed to be, that they needed to stop and have you find that overhead obstacle, yeah, not just go through. They're usually good at obstacles that are at their head level or maybe a little bit above that, so waist level for the person. But when you get up to forehead level for the person or even shoulder level, if it's not an obstacle that they run into every day or very frequently, they tend not to see it as an obstacle. So tree branches, for example, when you have uh, tree branches along the sidewalk that are generally high enough so that the person can walk under them without uh, being struck in the face, um, but after a rain, those branches will be weighted down so they'll be a lot lower and the dogs tend not to uh, avoid those obstacles because they're not aware that they've changed, that that it's now an obstacle. And Panda got lots of practice with that because along one stretch of sidewalk that was our daily route, there was a hedgerow and in the winter when the snow was on the branches, they would lean down and be exactly what you described and she was so good at stopping and then finding a way around so that I was not getting hit by those branches. Yeah, and the other thing that uh, Panda is very good at that the dogs had a lot of trouble with were truck mirrors, the big mirrors that are on the outside of of trucks, uh, pickup trucks and other trucks uh, that are right at uh, face level for the person. If you have to walk through, like in a parking lot where you may have to walk between cars to, to get to uh, the the storefronts, or even along the sidewalk where there, you might have to walk around a, a truck that's unloading or something like that. The mirrors that stick out at the human's head level a lot of times are missed by the dogs, and Panda has always been very good at uh, noticing those and going around them. Now I have some great video from the Equine Affair. which So she came to us in September, the Equine Affair is the first weekend of November, so that'll give you the time frame. So she's, that stage, she was, what, 11 months old. And I was walking her through the back parking lot at the Equine Affair, and because at that time I was, I had a trade booth at the Equine Affair, and I was doing demos there as well. And Panda was there with me and, uh, because she was she was always with me at that stage because she was in training. And that was the first time that she actually guided. It was really wild. So we are in this total chaos of the back parking lots. There are people everywhere. There are horse trailers. There are cars. There's uh, horses moving around. And there, there aren't really a lot of the normal landmarks. But what Panda had been learning 
was to find an edge and track it. And so in that back parking lot, she found order in the chaos, that she found the edge to follow and followed it absolutely accurately. Took me around some very complex obstacles in terms of places where they were blocking traffic and you had to sort of zigzag your way through as a pedestrian. And then there was one stretch where there were a lot of trucks parked and she found, she took me behind the truck to find the edge, which was an overhead that she targeted on, and then uh, turned up and went out around a truck mirror. It was really, really so clear what she was doing. And that within, what, two months of two, two and a half months of training, that she was guiding to that extent. As an 11-month-old foal, weanling. That's amazing. She was just incredible. So why a horse? How did that happen? Who decided that? Which, was it already decided when she came to you that that was going to be a project for a guide, that she was going to be a project for a guide horse? How did that happen? It's time for the music. Thank you, Dominique, for asking that question and providing us with the perfect place to stop. We'll answer that and many more questions about Panda in next week's episode. And if you want to watch Panda and Anne in action, I've put a short video clip in the Equosity Library along with some photos. Just go to equosity.com. If you're already a member of the site, you can log in with your password. And if you haven't yet subscribed, it's easy to do so. The form for signing up for the library is right on the homepage of the equosity.com website. So next time we'll pick up with some more panda stories. And until then, have fun with your own horses. <laughs>